0: Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week it's Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Grease 2. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. We'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. Uh, I am Thomas Mariani, and unfortunately, uh, Adam is still in his sabbatical, uh, so he will not be joining us this week. But you know what? That's fine, because I really need a different kind of co-host in my life. I need a cool rider of a co-host, and of course, I have that now with... Uh, a returning guest for the show, Mr. Chris Lucentonio. Chris, welcome back to the show. Coming in on your bike, just completely different looking. Like, I, I had to, like, double check with you for a second, because you're wearing, like, a leather jacket and a bike helmet, and I am like,
1: instantaneously couldn't tell you were the same person. Oh, should I take the goggles off? Oh, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Oh, my God, it's him! <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> I was able to really flatten my British accent uh, for you, so you had no idea, but I can see that you were incredibly charmed. Very. I mean, honestly, quite charmed. Uh, but welcome back, Chris, to the show. Um,
0: I'm inviting you on here for this week. Uh, we're doing an episode in honor of um, Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania is coming out, which uh, I'm sure, I don't know, do
1: you have any love left for the Marvels at all, or is that... Not really interested in you at all. The real question was, is uh, Did I have any to begin with? But mm. uh, what was there has been thoroughly hammered out of me by, by the releasing model that they have glommed onto in recent years. And uh, when you said, in honor of Ant Man and Wasp Quantum Manium, I'm like, in honor? Heavy quotation marks around there, that there, honor. You, I, I you would say, to for say sure. that
0: yes.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. But at least the one of the
0: honorifics is one of the people who's uh, getting paid to be in front of green screen for that movie is Miss Michelle Pfeiffer, who, of course, has uh, been in a couple of those movies, but uh, had a whole other career before that. We like paying tribute to an actress in general on the show. And I'm curious, Chris, uh, what's your history with Miss Michelle Pfeiffer? What was, like, the first thing you kind of saw her in, and what do you think of her in general as an actress?
1: Uh, She's always a welcome presence in anything I've seen her in. But with uh, like my personal history with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer films, I realized looking over her filmography, I haven't seen a ton, even though every single time, as I said, she shows up in something I'm like, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. All right. This kicked up a notch here. Uh, I would say that the first uh, performance that I can really remember of hers, I see, I would assume that'd be... Uh, Batman Returns uh, that would be like the stock answer for so many people but honestly the one that really uh, I feel like left an impression on me the most was Scarface I think I saw Scarface before I ever saw Tim Burton's second Batman movie and her role as this almost like ethereal beauty this gangster mall that uh, that Tony Montana who has this like really skewed materialistic view of the American dream that is kind of accurate just Obsesses over and wants to make into this trophy wife and her quiet resistance to it all and that burning frustration she has like that was an incredible performance by her that kind of tinged her entire career for me it's like she's always this incredible presence is this word I keep coming back to. Uh, so that's probably where I was first introduced to the presence of Michelle Pfeiffer
0: yeah I mean I would probably more in the stock camp of I believe Batman Returns was definitely the first thing I saw her in um, introduced a lot of interesting things to me at a young age many people at a very young age that that very bizarre fascinating superior movie that will never happen again um, and I think the big thing with me and Pfeiffer is like I've seen a solid amount of her movies especially I like doing research before the show catching up on things I've missed uh, with her in it and I think what's fascinating is she's kind of a chameleon of an actress in a way I don't think a lot of people really appreciate. 100%, yeah. Yeah, because I think like a big thing with her is she kind of feels timeless in so many ways. Like We're going to be talking about two movies that are period pieces, and she feels very much like she fits into both of them seamlessly, and I think that's even the case where even if she goes genre-ish with like Batman Returns in that very weird stylized world or Stardust, or even a more regular sort of drama, she still fits in no matter what. I think she has a really... Great, like, ability to just like tap into whatever the movie's going for and instantaneously like drive with it, even if you know the rest of the movie might not work around her necessarily. I think she really tries to like deep dive into like what makes her character and the whole movie sort of work. And I think she more often than not like really works along with whatever
1: material she's given. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, it's the versatility of her her oeuvre like as you said she can fit into almost any role and play and she doesn't really have a type to play against but you can slaughter into almost any period uh any genre any like really anything and she can make it work even when the films themselves might let her down like I'm assuming I haven't seen it yet and probably not won't but I'm assuming that she is like uh, turning in incredible performances in the Ant-Man and Wasp films, where people will probably say like she's the best of a rather dire state of blockbuster Marvel movies.
0: Yeah, I at least have seen The the Last Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I thought she was, like, pretty solid in that for what she was really given. The movie's kind of, like, about trying to find her, necessarily, so she's not, she doesn't have a huge role in it, necessarily, but then again, even in, like, the, what was it, End Endgame, where she's in, like, one shot during, like, that big, like funeral scene at the end, and she fits perfectly in with this like incredibly like long lasting series of all these different characters just like, no, she fits in with everybody else. I think that's that's the big thing, is that she's really able game for whatever. And it's a bummer that like I know part of it was like after a certain point, like of her, her heyday in the eighties and nineties, she kinda like drifted off for a bit in the two thousands, like right after like what lies beneath. And she said to mm. herself that like she kinda took a break a bit, but also it feels like a bit of Hollywood sexism at the same time that kinda like prevented her from you know, being able to take on those roles as she was, you know, an actress like into her 50s and 60s or whatever. But at the same time, she still is incredible and she still, like, works so well even in, like, more recent movies. I think it's just if the roles are given to her and she also has the desire to even, like, pounce on these roles, I think she can still knock them out, even if it's... Once again, Ant-Man, The Lost for Her and Michael Douglas are like, oh, we got to get through the quantum realm and we got to find whatever aliens are here, I guess. Uh, They, you know, they both earn their checks in those movies, I would say.
1: Well, you describe that and then you realize, like, this is a film with uh, Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer in it. And like 20 years ago, I would have loved to watch that movie, but it's mostly green screen action and Marvel quips. So you're really dulling some very interesting screen personas by slotting them into these roles. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Hell, an action comedy with those two and Paul Rudd? That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah, that, that's like a huge box office hit of like 2003. Right, <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, but let's travel back uh, because we're discussing two films that uh, we ended up picking at the end of our last episode. Uh, we'll first be talking about our bad pick here, which is Grease 2. And then our good pick, which is Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, but first, let's go ahead and jump into Grease 2. Get ready for another term at Rydell
1: High with Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. <laughs>
0: and rock and roll in Grease 2. So Grease 2 came out uh, June 11th, 1982. Uh, A bit of a distance between it and the original Grease from 1978, which of course this is a sequel to. Before we even get into anything about Grease 2, I'm curious, Chris, do you have any history with the 1978
1: very popular film Grease? Well, no. Uh, My... (laughs) my familiarity with greece is uh i believe my mother was a fan so i heard snippets of the soundtrack and it was a as you said giant hit it was ubiquitous in our culture and so you pick up little traces of it here and there so despite the fact i've never seen greece i feel like i've seen greece and from what i from what i'm imagining i would not be a fan of greece and that's why i wanted to go in completely blind to its Sequel that apparently exists to give it the best possible chance. Not not to taint my experience with whatever was Greece. Yeah, that is interesting because um,
0: when I was younger, I have like a very much a contrast in that not only was I familiar with Greece, had seen Greece previously, but I have uh, two younger sisters who glommed onto Greece. Very much. It's sort of like that 90s nostalgia for 70s nostalgia, 50s nostalgia. <laughs> kind of like snake eating its tail kind of thing. Yeah. There was literally a point where like I would wake up in the morning for school and like elementary school to the soundtrack from Greece. You are describing my own personal hell. <laughs> a bit. That's why I kind of like was... Not really a fan of Grease for a while, I think just because of that overexposure. But I will say, I did rewatch it um, in prep for this episode for the first time, and it must be like 20 or so years. And I would still say, I think Grease is very shabby fun for what it is. Mm -hmm. It barely connects on a plot level. It's very much just like songs and set pieces kind of connect together very loosely. Um, But at the same time, there's kind of a charm to that. And, you know, it definitely feels like a movie that it was very popular at the time, still kind of maintained the popularity, all the way to 82, when um, Alan Carr, the big producer, decided, like, you know what, we're going to not only just make a Grease 2, but he wanted to marvel out this series, where he was like, I want to do more sequels that are set within, like, the the later 60s and counterculture area. I want a TV show, I want to go full bore with this, with Paramount, um, and uh, this did not do well enough. To what? To do that. I I know I'm, I'm I gotta sit you down, buddy. This was not a big hit, but it's not the first role for Pfeiffer. But it's one of her early roles, um, and it has some interesting people also in the cast, like Christopher McDonald and uh, <laughs> Tab Hunter, a few other like fun people. Some of the people reprising their roles from Greece as well, like Didi Khan, um, as Frenchie, amongst other people. And so, without any of that knowledge of the previous Greece,
1: uh, Chris, uh, what'd you think of Greece too? I. I am fascinated by this movie. Like, I am not entirely sure where I land on whether it's, whether it's good or bad because it's an incredibly incompetent musical. Almost all of its musical set pieces are just awfully directed. Like, nothing really works. There's no re- real sense of like storyline these music scenes just kind of happen it's, it's just a really big mess but it's so incredibly wrong-headed and weird and it has this life attached to a far uh, allegedly superior film that I have not seen yeah I have no idea what this film is and I'm kind of fascinated by just how weird it can get and it's many moving parts that just seem all seem so incongruous to one another
0: yeah i think i have a similar kind of thing with it where like greece 2 definitely has this weird thing where the reason why it exists is so crass and commercial mm-hmm. and the actual the songs which are done uh, by a guy named louis st louis who had d- worked on like arranging the music that was based on like the broadway show for the original greece and interestingly um he wrote one of the few original songs in Greece, which is like the song called "Sandy" that John Travolta sings on his own in a drive, and that's like easily the worst song of the original Greece, <laughs> like one of the worst examples, especially having Travolta go on his own, it's just like oh no, there's a reason why he works better in the group songs, yeah, <laughs> necessarily. But um, yeah, so all the songs I agree are terrible, but I gotta give a lot of credit to the performers in terms of they are going to like eleven. With like whatever like lame choreography they're given by Patricia Birch, who's the director slash choreographer, had choreographed the original Grease. Uh, this is her only directorial effort, uh, shockingly. Um, but uh, <laughs> the cast, I think, is very committed to this very bad bit that is like any of these dance numbers and song numbers, especially. Just the big thing we gotta get out of the way right off the bat is, um, this movie's so horny. Like, the original Grease is also horny, but there are at least three separate musical
1: numbers just about, like, we need to fuck. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's turning the subtext of the first film into the text of the film. Like, it, these, some of these songs are just explicitly about having sex. And th- that, that 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 is trying to appeal to the same audience of the first one, which is this peachy-king, teeny-bopper kind of throwback to the 50s, is, again, the, the word I keep co- coming back to is wrong-headed. There's like, who is this appealing to? I I guess me, because I'm just fascinated by it.
0: Yeah, I would say that, to be fair to the original Greece, there is a bit of that lasciviousness like, kind of underneath. There's sort of the thing where, like, it, it feels like the sort of history of Greece has been a lot more painted by, you know, people like my sisters when they were younger, like, on onto it, uh, at, and it being kind of like, oh, like, a lot of kids, like, were really interested in that movie, even though there's a bit more of, like, okay, there's sort of a 50s sheen here, but they are, like, there's more explicit stuff about, like, oh, we are kind of, like, fucking each other on the side. There's, like, implications of all this throughout the original Grease. But despite... It's not very subtle in the original Grease, but by comparison to Grease 2, it is, like, you know, a very subtle artistic piece about, like, sort of teenage sexuality. Versus here, you've got, like, the song Score Tonight... Which is done uh, at a bowling alley, mm-hmm. the sexiest sport of all, of course, <laughs> bowling. Uh, where it's literally kids just singing like "We're gonna score tonight," like multiple times over. That's the entire chorus. Um, and then there's the one about um, reproduction, where they're singing about sexual reproduction of plants in school. <laughs> that at one point, like literally, Tab Hunter gets hit on by one of the students, <laughs> who was just like, "Do you wear a condom?" Basically, they're like what the premise of their lyric is. And then the um, let's do it for our country where two kids are going to fuck inside of like a bomb shelter.
1: Yeah, there there is a difference between like the tone of Greece where it's like I've got chills. They're multiplying. You can you can you can extrapolate there and figure out what he's saying. And there's a difference between that and that like several lines in uh, do it for my country. It's like Ronald Reagan wants us to fuck. <laughs> we're gonna fuck for
0: the statue of liberty and disneyland and like all their landmarks like <laughs> for their edification like let's do it for the grand canyon baby <laughs> let's do it for the grand canyon
1: <laughs> like if it's uncle sam wants this so your mother would approve don't worry and again like as you said it's very lascivious with that because that is a song of sexual co- coher- coercion that is working off of the present night in 1980s as well as 1950s like paranoia over nuclear war and it's all folded folded into this really heartfelt song that uh who who is performing that song um uh it's the Lewis and
0: Sharon characters um who are played by uh Peter Frechette and uh Maureen Teefey Yeah P-
1: Peter Frechette is really selling it like like I believe him that he believes his country wants him to lose his virginity but also the scene is set up as a ploy by him and the other t-birds and of course this scene has nothing to do with the rest of the film
0: no not at all no it's like much of the musical numbers do just kind of feel like off and center which once again the original grease like not a very cohesive plot necessarily but at least it's kind of like a flowing thing with like okay sandy and Danny zuko have like that trouble at the beginning where like they were, were like off together for the summer and then the conflict of like oh we got to present ourselves in front of each other differently um as opposed to this movie kind of tries to do a gender bent version of this where you got like um the michelle pfeiffer's character of stephanie who's the leader of the pink ladies Mm -hmm. who in this case is like kind of like the tough girl who's like living her life and then maxwell caulfield comes in as michael who's the dorky dude even though this motherfucker looks like brad pitt like, oh, he, he looks so, he's so gorgeous. It's like, everyone's like, oh, you're a nerd and you have a
1: British accent. No one would be attracted to a hot looking dude with a British accent. Get away. No, no. He could, he could pose for Tiger Beat like the same day of a shoot for Grease too. Like I'm not buying that he is an outcast. I don't know. He wears sweater vests.
0: That's pretty uncool. I don't know if anyone would be around him with a sweater
1: vest on. Yeah. It's the 1950s into 60s. They're all dressed like dorks. It's okay. <laughs>
0: Look, not at all, like, she can't be seen with him, like, with her pink collar that she puts up and she's got her glasses, sunglasses on, no way she could be seen with that nerd.
1: <laughs> what would all. everybody say? I mean, as we all know, she is, like, eternally betrothed to one of the T-Birds because of their rules. Right, which also was not a thing in the original Greece necessarily, like, they had
0: interactions with each other, but it wasn't a thing of, like, we have to date each other. Like, there's <laughs> that point where Adrian Zemed is just like, you know what, I'm denouncing... Uh, our our connection with each other you know what that's t-bird property the pink ladies jacket's like that what when did this rule get set up (laughs) like
1: that's like there's like a fucking union with these two gangs together (laughs) from what i'm from what it just all sounds like is that we needed a new hook for the sequel so they have they have to like as well as introduce that new character so he is the, the thing that could upset this balance that they are really trying to push for in this film Also, they're not, though, because it's not really a plot line, and it just kind of drifts away because there's another musical number coming. We have to get to it.
0: Yeah, and also they get Adrian Zemed, who, by the way, played the role of Danny Zuko on Broadway. So they literally have to feel like, we can't get Travolta back, so let's have you Broadway Danny Zuko come in and just fill in that role. It feels also a lot like that, which is how the different characters kind of like proximities for what came before. But at the same time, Zemed's very committed to being like the sort of tough guy part. My favorite of the T-Birds though is Christopher McDonald, who people out there might know as Shooter McGavin, one of my favorite character actors out there, is so committed to being like the tall doofus dude.
1: Just the just consummate clown of the group that has like some of the best lines and it, and it fills that one great grease thing that I know of where like there is absolutely no way that that is a high school student. Look at the lines in his face that's true most of them are kind of fit that same like we're late 20s
0: early 30s people playing high schoolers except the weird one in this case is very young pamela adlon as dolores the Mm -hmm. one pink lady who actually looks like a child and also is the one who keeps coming up to maxwell caulfield just like hey you want to go out sometime and stuff like that like this is very uncomfortable i don't know why we're doing this
1: it is it's a really weird decision but I really liked her performance in this. I feel like outside of uh, Pfeiffer, she's the only pink lady that has a kind of that has a kind of screen presence, unfortunately, because she has so many great bits in this movie. Th- there's that one scene when she's skateboarding to the bowling alley, and she passes by uh, the big bat, well, the, what is supposed to be the villain of the movie, and goes by him. no issue there. And then as soon as she gets to the door, she turns around and goes like, "Scum!" <laughs> yeah, I love that. Like it, she, she's a it's a very cute character that uh, is obviously playing beyond her years and trying to fit in. I mean, she she says that she takes this whole like mascot role as a compromise for the pink ladies. And it it's a really funny performance.
0: My favorite bit of her is the bit near the very end of the movie where Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield are actually together by the end. And then she just comes up and she's like, oh, look, Maxwell Caulfield, I'm sorry. I've actually got a guy myself, so we can't keep seeing each other. (laughs) It's a fun bit. But you mentioned her, of course, but let's focus a bit more on Pfeiffer here. Uh, you know, She got this role, it's like very early in her career, pre-Scarface, and apparently she was like, got this role somehow despite the fact that she was not professionally trained as a singer or a dancer. She was like doing lessons during the audition process and was very surprised she got the role. How do you feel about Pfeiffer in the very early performance here?
1: I think this performance is good, like very good. I have no idea what it's doing in this movie. Like she has an incredible like, well, not incredible, like a very engaging arc to this uh, to Greece 2, where she's like locked into this weird like relationship with the T-Birds. And she seems so blasé about th- this whole organization they have and wants this w- what she thinks to be this perfection of her like desires, which is this cool rider character that she wants. And when she gets it, there is a moment it's all pushed by Michelle Pfeiffer's acting where she's like conflicted about it while she is gradually falling in love with Michael Carrington, Maxwell Caulfield's character. And it's such a like a weirdly grounded performance that feels like a like run of the mill, like high school girl discovering like real love for the first time. Which is fantastic, and she again, she has presence. Like you can tell, like from the get go, as uh, one of her first roles, she has star power. No matter what uh, Grease Two did at the box office, she was going to be fine because people were going to notice her in this role. But when everybody else is playing this parodic archetype of 1950s youth culture, or rather, like a parody of a parody of the Grease roles that are trying to slot them into. She sticks out like so well and then so badly because it does. It feels like she's off in her own movie.
0: Yeah, to the degree that during her great song, Cool Rider, uh, which is not a very well-written song, but she really sells it once again with whatever limited choreography she has. But there's a point where she's, like, doing some chicken bucks with, like, her her arms and stuff like that. It doesn't matter because she looks instantaneously still, like, very cool and very much, like, she's just in that ecstasy of just, like, this is my fantasy of what I want out of a man. And, like, as she's dancing, there's that point where, like, she leaves the auditorium where she starts dancing and then into the school and no one pays attention to her. Like, to the degree that, like, as the song is ending, <laughs> it's uh, Maxwell Caulfield, I believe, and Peter Frichet are talking to each other about other bullshit. Like, they don't even notice that she's leaving.
1: She's like, so anyway, yo, can you write a paper for
0: me? <laughs>
1: oh, God. Uh, again, just uh, so many plot lines that go nowhere in this film. But that cool writer scene is interesting, in, like, because it points to all the problems with this film. That it's not a greatly written song, but Pfeiffer sells it with her uh, singing performance, as well as not necessarily her physical performance, but what she's able to do outside of the choreography, you do really buy that it's like this weirdly longing song for a meatloaf character from like, because it's like a bad out of hell song, honestly. But this sequence is shot terribly for a musical. Like it's for each of the three verses, it's close up on Michelle Pfeiffer's face, uh, talking to Maxwell Caulfield. Then the second verse, her climbing a ladder, And then the third verse, as you said, like, chicken balking dancing in an abandoned room. Like, this is a terrible set piece for your movie that is supposed to be, like, it's supposed to explain her entire character and her whole arc of, like, what she wants and her, like, emotional side. And it's completely let down by this bland, uninteresting direction.
0: But at the same time, I do appreciate what she's able to do within even, like, that bad direction, bad choreography. Like, the ladder thing, where there's a point where, like, she literally gets up on the ladder, climbs up, and then sits, like, atop at of it to, like, really intimate, like, the sexuality that she's actually trying to, like, portray about, like, what she wants out of a man, and then g- slides down the ladder pretty seamlessly in a way where I'm just like, oh, wow, I can't believe you actually just, like, didn't fall on your face based on this incredibly <laughs> dangerous choreography of, like, yeah, climb the ladder, Michelle, and then, like, kind of go down a few steps, but, like, land in a cool way. It's like, you were gonna, like, destroy her feet if she, would like, landed in the wrong place. Oh, but yeah. She, and that- like,
1: makes it look cool. And that was like a bockety set ladder that could easily have fallen over. Like, they're they're putting the potential future star Michelle Pfeiffer's life in their hands. And I don't think I trust the director of Grease 2 with that. Not necessarily, no. But she has this weird sincerity to her entire
0: character about Mm -hmm. him, like... Completely dismantling what the idea of like the T Birds and the Pink Ladies are, which, for the record, if this was meant to continue like a big franchise, that feels like a bad step. <laughs> which is like, man, this is all bullshit, right? That we're doing this. Like, hey, what are you talking about? T Birds and Pink Ladies, everything, come on. All leading up to like the talent show, which is like the big thing, like, everybody's kind of leading toward a bunch of musical numbers happen there. And I will also say, even though it's a, it leads into like a really dumb, like fantasy sequence, the bit where like she's performing at the talent show. But then, like, she's overcome with grief about the potential death of, like, her dream guy. And she's just, like, coming down the stairs and then, like, looks off into the distance like she's got PTSD. It's a genuinely effective moment. Once again, for a dumb movie where it cuts to, like, her having a fantasy sequence with, like, her dream guy in, like, weird white heaven and bullshit like that. It's so dumb, but she's selling it as much as she possibly can.
1: (laughs) Which is just all the more, like, inexplicable. Like, why are... Like, I I get it. It's your first starring role. So, yeah, you have to bring everything. But you outclass everything else in this movie in that one sequence of her breaking off from that uh, Girl for Every Season song, which is just... God, like, (laughs) most of the talent show songs are incredibly forgettable. She just becomes, like, Michelle Pfeiffer in that one small segment, only to be undercut by that... Weird fantasy sequence that is shot in the grayest, haziest version of heaven I've ever seen in my life. You can't make out shit in that. Yeah, I think it's also not helped, obviously, by just the
0: fact that as great as Pfeiffer is, you have to be convinced that she would fall for Caulfield, who in this movie is playing like the most stereotypical sort of like nerd possible with once again like the British accent and the good looks, but still like there's no real chemistry between the two of them. Not at all. Like, there's that bit where he talks, which is like, uh, have you read the latest Superman comic? Which is like, uh, not in the last five minutes, or whatever. And it's like, that feels like a more accurate display of, like, what their relationship would be. Like, not this, like, oh, you're a secret nerd who, like, I kind of have feelings for, but I really have feelings for my cool writer. Oh, wait, you're one and the same? It oh, looks like I got two for one price, or whatever, by the end of it.
1: No, it's like... Vi- that you, you don't believe there's necessarily chemistry at all in this. Not at all. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer. Presence Maxwell Caulfield, he blends into the backdrop. He is, he, he's always kind of from what I've seen him in. He's always kind of been a wooden actor, and here he's given, he's given more substantial things to do. But in everything, it's just maybe it's the fault of the writing. But there is no, there's nothing charming here other than his charming boyish good looks and the fact that you have this the Stephanie character who is being very like, as I am saying, like very interesting with her whole arc, this uh, weird romantic problem she's finding herself in where she is given exactly what she wants. And she's wondering if that's real, if it's all cracked up to be. And if it's just a fantasy, what does she want out of this cool writer person who just shows up and leaves like that scene with her and Maxwell Caulfield in the diner where she's explaining all this to him. And like, I'm I'm into it. Like I'm buying everything she says. Like it looks like she, it sounds like she's really working through something. And there's just Caulfield just sit, sitting there, repeating yep. things back at her, just uh, l- waiting for his burger, talking about Hamlet.
0: Scintillating chemistry though, the two of them. Just you can instantly tell they're gonna fall in love at that luau. <laughs> that happens later.
1: She has more chemistry with Adrian Zemed because I believe that at one point there was a relationship there that that went wrong because of the T-Bird pink lady thing and their whole weird bond. Like this launched the career of Michelle Pfeiffer to a degree. And I would feel like she would not be like embarrassed to bring it up again. Caulfield like this might be all he got. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd probably say. If anything, he has more chemistry with
0: Frenchie, which is a really weird thing where, like, she was one of the pink ladies in the original movie. And they just, guess, like, she's the one who they could get to come back. Mm. And she explains just like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to uh, get all my credits together so I can uh, get get out of here or whatever after I dropped out for beauty school. she's One of many weird characters who come back. Like, you have, like, the principal, uh, Eve Arden, or Sid Caesar as the coach, Eddie Deason voice of Mandart coming back. Um, yeah. As like one of the side people. Even the villain who you're talking about, Leo, is Dennis Stewart, who was the villain of the original movie and had like the big drag race with John Travolta. So it's just like, dude, are you just hanging around this fucking high school trying to like race kids from like cars to motorcycles? Like get a fucking life. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> yeah. Like you're just you're just picking beefs with like the next generation of T-Birds. Like congratulations. You you drove your mit- motorcycle around a bunch of high schoolers. Uh, yeah, you, you got any plans outside of that? Um, how are you supporting yourself, sir? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I mean, is is there anything else to say
0: about Grease 2 for you? Any final thoughts about Grease 2 there, Chris?
1: I feel like there's going to be a point sometime in the future where just like a light clicks on my brain. It's like Grease 2 kind of slaps. Sorry to break the trend here, but like Grease 2 kind of slaps. Not there yet. I can see it coming maybe, but... Yeah, I was just really intrigued by this. And like many of the problems come from direction and the song choices and it's like attachment to Greece, because I have no nostalgia for that. And the fact that even there was a sequel produced is just baffling to me. And I'm responding to what you said, that it's a much hornier version of Greece. And that's fascinating to me. So, yeah, I'm just I'm just kind of intrigued by it. Like there's a phrase that I like to use called a watch it w h a t c h i t uh where you kind of have to just like let it wash over you it's like what is what is anything what are the decisions behind most of what I'm watching here so yeah like uh maybe one day I will say like actually Greece 2 is far superior than the original Greece but not today. You know, you wouldn't be alone, though.
0: That's the thing, is this movie has built a bit of a cult following. There are some who would argue that Greece 2 is better than Greece, and, I mean, I can see at least why people would have that fascination. I remember seeing this like, not too long after, my sisters were in the big Grease phase, and I was just like, um, I don't know, this is even not nearly as good as this movie I don't like, necessarily. But, like, going back to it, I find it I agree, very fascinating, just as, like, a weird cultural object. Like, okay, we're going to transplant Greece massive of the late 70s into the early 80s, and we're going to get into, like, the early 60s, and we're going to integrate a lot of that stuff and be much more explicitly horny in a way that, like, I'm not sure who it would necessarily appeal to. Yet, at the same time, I am deeply intrigued by it. I think despite the fact that I don't think any of the songs are very good, and I don't think the direction or the choreography is that great, it's really on the entire cast who is committing to the various odd bits and particularly being just as like crazy and insane as they possibly can be during the musical numbers, except for Pfeiffer who was way more committed to just being a genuinely like interesting, introspective high schooler kind of like going through a lot of shit about like who does she, what does she want out of life and who does she want in a partner and all these other fascinating things that like, I agree with you. It's a weird gumbo. It's a weird stew that like, there's a lot of different ingredients in there, but at the same time, like I can't help but commit to eating the whole bowl. Of that soup, no matter how weird it tastes. <laughs> I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think like uh, it is definitely one that you has to wash over you.
1: Yeah, yeah. As like as a deeply cynical cash in sequel to a cultural phenomenon, this could have been a lot worse and a lot more forgettable. And the fact that I even remember bits and some parts of songs and even character names to me, like as someone who has no context for Greece is kind of impressing me. Yes, uh, but we have a whole other feature to talk about here. Let's get into
0: our good feature, Dangerous Liaisons. I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own.
1: Is there anything I could do to help? Come back when you've succeeded with Madame de Torvel. Yes. And I will offer you a reward. My love.
0: I have this appalling reputation. Yes, I
1: have been warned about you. What is true of most men is doubly so of him. Love what you You promised. Yes, of course, I understand, but
0: I must know. I I want the excitement of watching her betray everything
1: that's most important to
0: her. I love you so much.
1: Why do you suppose we only feel compelled to chase the ones who run away?
0: Immaturity. So Dangerous Liaisons came out uh, December 16th, 1988, uh, from director Stephen Fears and writer Christopher Hampton, uh, which was based on his play, that in turn was based on the 1782 novel. This was a movie that uh, Adam had picked this, he sent me his picks, uh, even in his sabbatical, and I had always heard about this movie but never seen it, and it's very interesting, especially um, if any of you are fans of Cruel Intentions out there, uh, this is the basis for cruel Intentions, uh, in which we follow uh, two folks in uh, 18th century France uh, who are played by uh, Glenn Close and John Malkovich, who are highly aristocratic, have a lot of money, very bored. So they decide in their boredom, uh, hey, let's fuck with some people and let's do some, like, weird kinky sex shit um, and do, very, like, just mainly to destroy their lives. And uh, that's in ends up encompassing uh, both a young woman played by Uma Thurman and the wife of a nobleman uh, who's off... Uh, in Congress, uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, some other people pop up here, including Peter Capaldi and the very young Keanu Reeves. We'll get into all of it. It's a very interesting uh, movie. But I'm curious, uh, Chris, did you have any relationship with Dangerous Liaisons before I tasked you to watch it for the show?
1: Uh, Yes, I had seen this film before. I can't remember exactly when. It was in one of those periods when, like, probably in, like, uh, a height of Marvel releasing, not to bring them up again, but, like, the, the thought occurred to me, it's like, man... They used to make movies for adults about adult things, and Dangerous Liaisons. Like I had not seen it at the time, and like this feels like a movie for adults. Like bear in mind, I'm like 22 saying this, but (laughs) so it's uh, like me, a totally grown up big boy. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was just a, it was just like a curiosity because I I had known Stephen Frears, his work, and I've been interested in a lot of it, and this just felt like a. Like a big film for big performances. And so I thought like I would give it a shot. And wh- yeah, it, I would just kind of bowled over by it. Um, so many great performances in this film. Like this is one of my favorite Malkovich performances. Uh, her, him and Glenn Close. Their they're weird kinky duel that they have each other that's all born onto these just very innocent and virtuous uh, other members of the aristocracy that are just just getting sucked into these two people's depravity. It's a really great stage uh, adaptation or adaptation of a stage play, rather. And it's a really tight psychosexual thriller. Yeah. Um,
0: Like I said, this is the first time I'd seen it. And uh, this movie is incredibly entertaining. I think that's mm-hmm. that's the weird thing. It's like I agree with you that it's very much like it's a movie for adults, but at the same time it's definitely a movie where I'm watching it and even though I'm by myself watching it um, on my TV at the same time I'm just like oh shit Oh, no. Oh, this is happening now. Oh, this is crazy. I can't believe it. Like, this feels like a movie that would be great with, like, an audience who would encompass adults, but at the same time, it kind of gives you that entertaining thrill of just, like, this, the weird sort of, like, sexual thriller that we also don't get a lot of now, just given, you know, a lot of the desexualization of Hollywood. That's a huge debate. Twitter discourse that's going on and rages for months on end. Uh, But when you see a movie like this, you can kind of see it because, like, with the John Malkovich and Glenn Close characters, the big thing is just that, like, they're doing this back and forth because Close is tempting, just like, if you can prove to me that you will take uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, who's this noble woman who does not go for any of our depravities and sink her down to our level and prove it to me in writing... I'll fuck the shit out of you. And he's just like, challenge accepted! And like that, just the fact that like it goes on like a wager, like this is like the two fucking brothers from trading places, like it's over a dollar kind of bullshit, is like, is so fascinating to me. And I think like the chemistry off of Close and Malkovich, there is a sexuality there, but there's also so much inherent depravity where, especially just consider like Close, obviously I've seen her in like other things and I can see her being a sexual being at some point. Malkovich is like, so a slimy weirdo dude yeah. who I would never imagine being sexual, but it works for this movie. Like when he says to Michelle Pfeiffer at one point, like, I adore you. And even the music is like incredibly terrifying, like it's a horror movie. <laughs> Where it's just like him giving you a compliment of some kind of like big expression of love is a danger, don't go there, no, this is bad.
1: <laughs> exactly, because it's, it's such a calculating performance it's a sinister kind of aristocrat who's like absolutely bored with the pleasures of life like who can probably only really get hard if he knows that it's fucking with somebody else like the, the and it's just it's as you said so slimy so manipulative even to the point where uh it might be to the detriment of the third act where his late uh, in film turn after the love of Michelle Pfeiffer's character Dave Torval has like put him onto a new path it's still just he's just way too committed to that sliminess of the earlier scenes where it, it's a hard sell and Malkovich uh, does his best. But yeah, it's it's it, it, like slimy is the word I keep coming back to you. Like you really nailed it with that one. And then at the same time, like you can still
0: see why like at least a Pfeiffer would be curious about him because he just feels so different from her life where she is like very like noble and doesn't have any kind of like awful pursuits but he follows her like a fucking shark like that's my favorite shot of this movie is the bit where like she's walking down like in the garden and he's like following her and he like swoops between like the shot of her and it's just like he's literally like a predator circling his prey but at the same time like you can see why at least Pfeiffer has like a fascination he's just like this is so different this is so odd for me like he's giving me something completely different in my life meanwhile it's Malkovich being just just like I love you with a fiery passion <laughs> it's like no
1: he's no, a shark <laughs> get that, away from him <laughs> that, that shot is so great because while uh he is like stepping back and forth between each of her sides uh his face is almost completely stone-faced like, he has no expression there he's just like he's reciting all of these uh words of woo to her and with every step she's like reacting and like not showing him anything But, like, keeping it all to herself, it's a great, like, summation of those two characters. Yeah, like, there is some really great direction happening in this film.
0: And also just a lot of great, like, even stuff that's, like, comedic and fun. Like, there's the bit where, um, I believe it's Glenn Close is talking with uh, Uma Thurman or somebody else, like, comes in. And fucking Malkovich is in the background trying to hide. (laughs) He's, like, swooping around, like, moonwalking and other bullshit. (laughs) It's like it's genuinely very like funny at the same time it never like destroys any of the uh, like the tension of all of this there's like a lot of like humorous stuff there but it's sort of like a pithy almost dark humor like even especially never Glenn Close like gets more news just like oh are you getting close to her? Fascinating and she like <laughs> holds her hand and shit like that. Just like, oh, oh, she's getting off on this. And, uh, and she has a, a very similar kind of like fascinating depravity to her this whole time where she's just like even the fact that she initially wants like him to woo Uma Thurman mm-hmm. and then Malkovich is like, No, I have my sights on Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay, fine, you can go off for that for a bit, but meanwhile I'm gonna manipulate the shit around here to where you have to come back and you have to help me out with my depravity. You can't have your own thing. You gotta help with my thing.
1: No, it's like these two were kind of like made for each other and they were like a uh, close's character and Malkovich's character like they were destined to destroy one another inevitably there's a great shot of uh, close like when she's sent forward to like talk to Thurman's character after after what Malkovich does to her and she steps out of her carriage and she has this Big evil, like the Grinch, kind of smile on her, and then it drops immediately when she sees, uh, like Thurman's mother, uh, well, car- Thurman's character's mother, running towards her, and she's like all sympathetic. It's like these two faced. Faster. yeah considering like uma thurman has just been like violated horribly
0: by yes. alcovich it's upsetting and um she like responds to that which is like no dear this is a good thing he can teach you so much these two people are just fucking monsters i can't believe it but at the same time they're such compelling monsters i have to keep watching
1: to, to the point uh which will uh i guess we'll like move into now about like the other like performances in the film. Like when I first watched Dangerous Liaisons, like I was captivated by Malkovich and Glenn Close and didn't really think much about uh, Thurman, Pfeiffer's, even Reeves's uh, performances like as uh, in their supporting roles. But in this in this go around, like I was just w- just way more drawn to like their pained, like virtuous uh, corruption arcs that like uh, De Torval and uh, Valange go on. I agree. Yes, I think with
0: with like Thurman and Reeves, they feel like the most sort of innocence. They're just being manipulated like chess pieces, mm-hmm. and particularly like Reeves. Obviously, like this is not too long before uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's not really even attempting a British accent here, which I think is thankful, like or French or anything. He's just kind of slightly more aristocratic. But I love the bit where him and Thurman. He's on the piano and she's on the harp. And he, like, sends a note quickly and just says, I love you in, like, cursive. They're, like, kids. It's adorable. There's, like, a cute innocence between the two of them, even to the degree that, like, when he ends up sh- uh, shacking up with Glenn Close, like, they are never naked together. And even, like, when whenever they are near each other, like, when Malkovich walks in on the two of them, it looks like he's almost, like, sucking from Glenn Close's teeth. Like, he's a child. He is a like, child, there's nothing yeah. there's nothing at all, like, even sexual often, like, even the look that he has when he's just, like, standing on top of Glenn Close, both clothed, and Malcovich is like, oh, and to find you here too, he's just like, uh, uh, I should go see Ted, I'm gonna leave. (laughs) Like, he's so, like, completely guilty over it. Like, both him and Thurman, I think, do a really great job of playing the innocence there. And then Pfeiffer, I mean, we should probably talk about, kind of a thankless role in theory for her. Mm -hmm. Like, she's playing this woman who could just be like, oh, I'm Uh, another innocent who's corrupted and I'm just like a, she's like very prim and proper and even she just lets out a bit of detail about like, oh yeah, I've heard about you, uh, Malkovich. I'm aware of all of your like trifles and tribulations, but I really believe her sort of dissent that she goes on here where it's like a corruption that like, is not at all from her just being sexual. She feels like she's kind of like awakening and opening up herself about like what she could be as a person. And she thinks that Malkovich can have that. And then when Malkovich does the whole like, it's beyond my control bit, it is devastating to see her just crumble like that. It's so heartbreaking. And you feel like it's not just, oh, a woman was doomed by a man and it's like very like one dimensional. It's like, no, there's a lot of dimension there to like her like discovering herself and then breaking apart. There's a real tragedy that feels palpable to her.
1: No, yeah, because uh, it's it's really illustrating that um, w- what's, what Malkovich and Glenn Close have been doing throughout this entire film is like playing with these people's lives and, not, and that's like the first kind of instance of like there are serious kind of like emotional consequences to toying with someone's emotions for like for months and months on end. It's like that whole breakdown scene between her and Malkovich, like as you said, it's heartbreaking because like there was no... On her end, there was no, like, sense of abandoning her, like, uh, morals or anything. She was just, like, there was a, a new desire and love awakening in her for this Malkovich character, despite all that she's been told. And it it breaks her heart to know that everything she gave up, like, her virtue, her reputation for him is just thrown back in her face. And, like, the the way that she, like, struggles to deal with that, it's... Like again, that that presence of Pfeiffer it just sells it all. Yeah, like I, I love that performance of her, and I'm like ashamed that I didn't see it like the first time around when I watched Dangerous Liaisons. But when you have close and Malkovich just going so big with their two performances, and Pfeiffer is not is not doesn't get to do that kind of big sweeping character. It's a it's a more like like as I kind of gravitated towards in Greece too, a more grounded and emotionally sincere performance, and it it just really works here. It really sells, like, the tragedy that's
0: going on with this whole thing. Like, her and Thurman especially I think both sell the fact that just like they're they losing so much because of these like little games these people are playing what feels to them like oh this is just us like moving chess pieces around and like looking at each other erotically meanwhile those chess pieces have feelings mm-hmm. and emotions and you're totally fucking with them this whole time and it, it feels like there's like really the two of them sell beautifully just the fact that there are consequences to these actions that like they don't even consider like I agree with you that I think the biggest pill that I would have to swallow was ML any kind of like regret about what he's done after like that big scene, just like I don't know, this feels like you're you're kind of embarrassed of your kink now. Like I don't know, you were pretty big on this. You had mm. a huge erection this whole time, <laughs> and now you're just like finally realizing, just like oh, maybe this was a bad thing. Like I don't know if I would believe that necessarily, but at the same time, I do really like like as it gets to the actual duel between him and Reeves, and eventually like his basically suicide by Reeves blade. Um, how like that one that final line is so good about just like. Keanu Reeves saying like, oh, I I don't think you got to admit that like, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt, basically. says, mm-hmm. just like, well, that's true. I mean, because your intentions were pure the entire time. Not something anyone could say about me at all. I and mean, then dies instantaneously. Like, I get at least somebody having that kind of like realization and epiphany on their deathbed. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, I was a dick.
1: Bye. Like, <laughs> it's all, just... Like, my, my entire run of, of uh, the higher echelons of society has just been just been like a negative effect on everybody like i am i am a cad i am a rakish asshole and i have to now die with that um but it's just a it's just like a a positive and negative of malkovich's like whole approach to acting is that he's incredibly calculated like every single decision he makes it feels like uh it was labored over for weeks on end and it, it plays really well in like the first uh, like two thirds of this film when he has to be this like manipulating uh, Machiavellian kind of sexual deviant. But in that third act w- during that duel, I'm way more convinced that he was more invested in giving Reeves the letters of uh, closest character to ruin her reputation. And like, oh, yeah, and, and if you can, like, um go, go tell her that I I really did care for her. Anyway, play. Which I do even love the fact that when Reeves goes over to tell Pfeiffer, she's just
0: like, "Just fucking stop! <laughs> I don't care. I'm dying here of all broken heart. Fuck that, dude. I'm out of here." And <laughs> just like she dies there. But yeah, leading up to like the finale of this movie with close, like going to her opera box and everybody booing her after those letters <laughs> have been released, and then her going full, just like, "Oh, I'm taking off all of this makeup," and just like that shot on close, like the final closing shot for just taking off all that makeup, is beautiful, and I think sums up so well, because like, you at least see with Close that it feels like, and she kind of hints at this with dialogue and stuff, that like, this is much more a case of, like, with her, it's very like, plotted revenge against, like, the guy who Uma Thurman is betrothed to, who used to be her lover. Mm -hmm. And it's much more like this thing about, oh, men have destroyed me, so I'm gonna have some power finally in my life, and even if that means I gotta horribly destroy women in my wake, I don't care, I'm finally gonna have some kind of power in this scenario, Um, even though she's horribly cruel and still deserves that fate at the at the same time there's that smidge more of empathy you kind of have which is like that's was just her trying to get power in some way uh, even though she did it in a horrible monstrous way and she deserved everything that came to her at the same time it's like oh I still feel a smidge bad not too bad cuz fuck you but damn it's still harsh
1: yeah and it's it's played on like two levels there cuz uh there's that great line she has early on uh where it's like I, I choose to dominate your sex and avenge my own when speaking to Malkovich. It's like, yeah, that's a perfect like summary of her whole character and what she's been doing with all of her influence in society. And in that final shot, it's uh, like there is that tinge of empathy there because like, yeah, you're no you're no longer protected. But in the process of taking off all that makeup and by herself rather than have all her servants do it, it's like you, you start to realize like, oh, right. The only reason why you were able to play chess with these people's emotions is because you are incredibly guarded in society you have influence you you have you have privilege that these other characters just don't and they can't they can't see through your designs because they trust you as this this person who is on a higher rung of society and having her remove all of these like indicators of that status it brings her back down to like almost a human level where in the entirety of the film she's a monster
0: Right, yeah. I think he does a really good job with that. And, you know, just in terms of, like, some of the other stuff here, like, Close was nominated, along with Pfeiffer for Best Supporting Actress, and it was nominated for Best Score at the Academy Awards, but it ended up winning Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, and Costume Design. Those three very deserved, I 100%. think, we haven't talked yeah. that much about how it looks and everything, but it's such a perfect recreation of, like, that kind of, like, right-before-the-revolution-era France and with the costumes and the art direction and everything. It just feels like it, it, it works for like the fact that it looks so authentic and like grand and massive. It makes their sort of like machinations, her and Clo- uh, close and Malkovich's machinations work so wonderfully. We're just like, Oh, we're in this big opulent, beautiful place and wearing these elaborate, lovely outfits. God, we're so bored. Let's fuck with people so we can get hard on. Let's do that. Cause this is so big and massive and I, we're so small. Let's just fuck with the other smaller people. <laughs>
1: We we are surrounded by the lapse of luxury and in these in, in these like historic buildings that have stood the test of time. But, you know, that's just not enough. Like I, I like I need to break somebody's heart. Yeah. Even down to like one of my favorite details is Malkovich uh, at
0: one point is like completely nude and is like writing a letter to uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer character on the back of a young woman who he's, like, been <laughs> having sex with on the side. that's just, like, that's how, like, opulent is just, like, oh, I can't write on, like, this elaborate desk I have off to the side of my bed. No, I have to write on this woman who's here, and I can get off on also doing this, like, treating her like furniture, treating her like an object. L- yeah. It does, literally- it's another, like, all, around all this opulence, he's once again just doing something depraved and maddening and also getting her off at the same time with it. It's so perfect.
1: And it's, the, again, layers to that, because it's literally turning. Turning This uh, woman into an object while he is attempting to seduce another woman with that letter and be- and make her believe that he legitimately loves her. It's the layers of scum that this guy has is incredible. Which I think that's the thing is like, that's the thing Adam and I have talked about often on the show is
0: that sort of like the lack of likability, quote unquote, with characters. And I think like I'm not someone who usually subscribes to like a character has to be likable for me to be invested. And this is, I think, a great example of that, where these two characters are some of the most loathsome, awful people I've ever seen. But I am so fascinated to watch them do all these horrible things to people because they're like so like clever in the way that they talk to each other. There's such, like, a deliciousness to their back and forth. And also just, like, it's a fascinating plot that is, like, on a certain level, like, so malicious. Even down to, like, fucking... Malkovich has a toady that's played by Peter Capaldi's character (laughs) who, like, one aspect of this, like, I have to get the letters from from, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer so I can, like, know exactly who's, like, sending messages and correspondences. So um, I need Peter Capaldi to have sex with that uh, maid... And then I will blackmail her into giving me those letters. And then the way he walks out and like, sees Capaldi and initially looks like, oh, I'm disgusted. But yeah, motherfucker, right? We did that. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> we were, this is working. Capaldi's also really fun in that very small part. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's not given a lot to do, but uh, he and Malkovich have like a really nice uh, like uh, servant uh, master kind of relationship there. And it's uh, it's really entertaining. My, my favorite like line read from Malkovich, and it's a nothing line, but it speaks volumes to his character and he imbues it like, like so much menace is after his whole scheme of publicly giving to a like a uh, poor person to hopefully have that news make it back to uh Pfeiffer uh like Capaldi tells him like you know like there's a bunch of these families all around and he was like really he seemed like genuinely like surprised (laughs) that people lived in poverty and that they were living in like shanty towns all like all over France and he was like really huh what do you know or even just the bit
0: after, like, he does that, where he gives to that poor family, and then it immediately cuts to him, like, walking back up to his palace with, like, a bunch of, like, beggars around him, just like, please, help me, please, and he's just got this look like, disgust on his face, like, ugh, urchin, here, fine, here's some coins, some petty
1: coins, leave, leave my sight. It's I, I, like it's darkly funny, which is how, like, awful he is to these poor people. I, I think after he, like, hands out a couple of coins, he says, like, and that's enough for today. <laughs> yes oh
0: my god so good i mean chris is there any any final thoughts you have about dangerous
1: liaisons uh just to repeat what i said before we used to make films for adults and th- this was a genuine hit when it came out and i was like shocked by it like that and, and that you have these weighty performances and uh, again just connecting it to like the unexpected theme between this and Grease 2 incredibly incredibly horny And yes, Yes. it's a great time. It's a wonderfully sinister period piece. Uh, Just so many great uh, so so many great scenes that have so many layers of each character working off one another. Yeah, it's a great uh, time that you would not expect with this kind of material. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. Is like
0: I kind of avoided this when I was younger, just because like, oh, it's a stuffy like costume drama thing. Whatever, I don't need to see that. Uh, but kind of like around this, you know, same 80s era as like an Amadeus and some of these other movies where they have the appearance of like a big costume drama, but. They have, like, these adult weighty themes that are there at the same time that they're incredibly entertaining, vibrant movies that are just, like, so fascinating and engrossing and, as you mentioned, like, very sexual and horny in a way that feels, like, very nuanced and has, like, so many layers to it with all these different characters. It's just, it's so amazing. I would definitely say, if you were a fan of something like, say, recently, The Favourite. Uh, you should definitely seek this out. It has a very similar kind of like satiric vibe to it that I think really works uh, for that. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things we don't get a lot of uh, currently, like these kind of like psychosexual fascinating throws that actually have the like, quality of sensuality to them. And it's a real testament to like all the performers here, including Pfeiffer. Uh, who, despite you know, sort of not playing quite into, like she's more. I think she would come be, become more a bit known for like the sort of sultry kind of more femme fatale esque character. Mm-hmm. She's not playing that at all here. And I think she still imbues that character with a lot of like nuance and uh, you know sexuality and tragedy that still really works for her, as everyone else does in this movie. Ace's great fucking movie. Yeah, but it's time we get to our weekly segment, the double redo. Double. Redo,
1: double redo, double redo, double double redo, double 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 redo. Redo. That works. So
0: the double redo is a segment that we like to do every week, in which you know, in relation to the episode where we cover. Um, You know, a good and a bad movie related to a topic. Uh, We also, uh, during this segment, recommend a good movie you all should see related to the topic and then steer you away from a bad one that you shouldn't even bother with. Uh, So I have my two picks for Michelle Pfeiffer. And I'll start off here with a movie I didn't see until uh, just a couple days ago, uh, The Fabulous Baker Boys, which is one I kind of heard of, and I ended up really digging quite a bit. Uh, If you're unaware, this is a movie in which the titular Baker Boys are uh, brother piano players played by actual brothers Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. Uh, They work sort of like blue-collar, like going to clubs and stuff, where they play like dueling pianos, uh, but they're falling a bit more on hard times, and there's a bit more of a conflict where like Bo is a family man who uh, just wants to kind of like keep getting gigs so he can put food on the table and Jeff is very isolated doesn't have really many connections except for his dog and a neighbor girl who he like occasionally takes care of as like her mother's out and kind of distant from her so the two of them realize at a certain point like well we're kind of losing out on gigs we kind of need to add some new element to the act so we're gonna hire a singer And they go through some auditions and eventually find uh, this singer played by Michelle Pfeiffer who ends up adding a perfect uh, mix to the two of them and ends up getting them a lot of gigs. Uh, But at the same time, Jeff Bridges starts getting feels for Pfeiffer's character and uh, it ends up becoming, you know, sort of a big blocking point between his brother. Um, and the actual business that they're doing versus, like, what he actually wants in all life and his passions for doing more, like, jazz set stuff that he gets out of, like, what her desires are as well for performing, but also even their sexual desires. And I think it's a great little, like, sort of uh, dramedy movie uh, where there's a lot of, like, funny lines and back and forth between all these characters, but there's also a palpable sense of sexuality, particularly. There's a whole bit where Pfeiffer does, like, a big singing number, like, one-shot to um the man i love song and it's so tremendous it's such a great example of, like what she can actually display and there's also once again this movie that feels like it's for adults in terms of like right after they sort of have like this big new year's eve bash that they perform at where uh beau is gone bridges and pfeiffer have like this cool down moment where they're just talking to each other and then she's just like oh my god i'm feeling tensed up can you like help me, just give me like a a bit of like a massage or something. And they have the sexiest back massage scene I've ever seen in a movie. (laughs) It is so just like immediately like palpable, that connection they have and fascinating. It's it's, it's such a great movie that once again feels like it's actually for adults, which is not something, unfortunately, we get a lot of these days, like we mentioned with Dangerous Liaisons. Um, And then my bad pick is uh, her reuniting with the director who, got a great performance out of her in Batman Returns. Uh, She reunited with Tim Burton for Dark Shadows, which, you know, the Johnny Depp of it all makes it immediately not interesting as a movie, Uh, but even before all the recent controversies with him, um, this was like a dead-on-arrival, very bad horror comedy that had, I think, some potential, but especially, like, a huge cast around Depp, like Chloe Moretz, Pfeiffer, Jackie Earl Haley, a lot of fun people in this movie. Um, but it's it's based on the old uh, soap opera involving, like, a vampire character, like, coming back into from, like, the 1800s into, like, the 70s. And it feels, like, very, like, familiar and tired. None of the jokes really work that well. The only thing that really works for me is Ava Green who plays the sort of like immortal love interest for a uh, giant depths character. One of many examples where I was just like, man, Eva green, I you're popping so wonderfully. I wish you wouldn't do Tim Burton movies because she was on that kick for quite a bit. And, uh, otherwise, yeah, even like Pfeiffer is like so sidelined along with like most of the other cast that it just feels like a tremendous waste of so much talent that's involved there.
1: Uh, I've, fucking love the fabulous baker boys that is yeah. that is a phenomenal movie uh that's like one of my favorite jeff bridges performances performances and that like natural obviously brotherly c- chemistry he has with Bo bridges it just pops right off the screen this is like also one of my favorite like i would hold this up as like a near perfect screenplay just everything in it just works so well and yeah pfeiffer as a, that loud singer i think like Susie diamond is her name or something I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, one of her best like musical performances. Uh, she has an incredible voice in that movie. But yeah, just the way that she's in like introduced to this duo of brothers and completely unseats it. It's like just a perfect movie for adults. Not to harp on that, but yeah, love it. And I'll also just shout out a very fun young performance from Jennifer Tilly. That that is As true. Yeah, the field editioners, Yes. Uh, but I don't like the thing about Fabulous Baker voice too much because that di- Steve Kloves, the director he got like sidelined into the Harry Potter world and just never that's came such out a bummer. again yeah really like it was him it was just like oh my god this is so great
0: and just like he's become like the Harry Potter like boy for like so long like oh no <laughs> that's I, I, such a
1: bummer I think he wrote every, wo- every one of them except for like the fifth one and it's like man you couldn't be making more movies like this and Dark Shadows um skipped it uh this is And it's a really tragic reason because around the 2010s, Tim Burton became like, oh, I don't need to see every one of his movies. He's not a must watch director anymore. And that really hurt because like I held him up as like one of these, like I have to see everything that this guy's involved in that he's working with because no one is doing it like him. Like, and I maintain like ironically, even despite the Johnny Depp of it all, Edward is my favorite all time movie. And Mm. He will never make another movie like Ed Wood. He tried in like 2014 by with big eyes when he teamed with the same um, writing duo. But yeah, I saw the initial uh, trailers for Dark Shadows and just went like, oh, he's still doing these kind of movies.
0: Yeah, especially this was the movie right after Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) So it was
1: just like a devastating point. (laughs) Like maybe he'll get good again. And then, you know, Frank and Weenie came up and I really like that movie. And then Tim Burton. Yeah. Very unfortunate. But um, what about your choices for the double redo, Chris? Uh, so for my good pick, I chose a childhood staple of mine, The Prince of Egypt, the 1998 DreamWorks animated film, um, which is an adaptation of the Book of Exodus. W- what I was really drawn to it as a kid, like I didn't come from a religious household. And this film isn't necessarily like, a secular retelling of that story. It is very much faith based and really explores these questions of like prophecy and maintaining faith despite uh, th- despite the trials and tribulations you're sent through. What really brought me to this film and like to hold it on such a pedestal is like it is gorgeously animated. It is one. It is probably the best film that DreamWorks animation ever made. Like and again, they'll never make another one because they're on the CGI train. But although the new Puss and Boots movie is good. Uh, yeah, it's it gloms on to these like really epic moments of the story of Moses. But it's also like a grounded relationship movie between uh, Moses, uh, who's played by Val Kilmer, and his brother Ramses, who's played by Ralph Fiennes. And it just uses that jumping off point to be a really interesting exploration of the story that by making it into like a blockbuster movie that's rather than like, you know, a faith-based parable. It's a wonderfully animated film. It's gorgeous looking. Uh, The musical numbers, because, you know, 1998, animated movie had to have musical numbers they're all really good like they stay they uh, hold up very well uh one thing that unfortunately doesn't hold up and well it went viral recently on twitter uh when people were pointing out like here's the prince of egypt voice cast and a lot of white names on there like it's an all it's an all exclusively almost like exclusively white cast except for i believe uh except like Danny Glover and someone else on the cast. Um, Yeah, so I'm not going to defend that part. And especially when you have someone like Jeff Goldblum and his voice coming out of a character drawn to be an Egyptian slave. The 1998 of it all is unfortunate. But yeah, I think it's a really solid animated epic that I think holds up really well. And Pfeiffer, uh, she plays Moses's wife in the film, uh, Zipporah and they have a real like they have a really great vocal chemistry her and kilmer uh, it's a really like a sweet relationship that's at the center of the movie well, not at the center but like uh it, on the margins of the movie and unsurprisingly uh, she does all her own own singing for the film and it's great uh, um for my bad film well i picked i am sam from 2001 so this film its legacy is summed up in the tropic as a punchline in *Tropic Thunder*, of uh, Robert Downey Jr. warning Ben Stiller never to go full R-word. 2008 of it all. It's an incredibly mawkish, overly sentimental story of Sean of uh, Sean Penn who plays a man with intellectual disability, uh, Sam, and him trying to prove to the, prove to the court that he's able to keep his uh, precocious daughter, who's uh, played by Dakota Fanning, like he's 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 a fit enough parent. Uh, for her. And it's just incredibly wrongheaded. is understandably forgotten uh, and just nothing really works in that film. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer maybe kind of works as his uh, lawyer who's working pro bono to prove to herself that she has, like, still has an emotional core despite working through the legal system and being gradually uh, estranged from her son as a single parent. And she gives a I would say decent performance. Like she's the best thing in this movie when she's not being suffocated by the large swinging performance of Sean Penn. But I feel like she's phoning in from a different movie entirely. Yeah, uh, not a great film. Uh, Aged very poorly, as you would expect. Um, And probably the most offensive thing about the movie is that it has a soundtrack exclusively of Bad Beatles covers. Yeah, I Am Sam is terrible.
0: Yeah, uh, I have seen both of yours. Um, I Prince of Egypt is definitely one that like I think I respect it more than necessarily love it. I think I would say of the various attempts both at Disney and at DreamWorks that Katzenberg kind of made to piggyback on like, I want to do another Beauty and the Beast where I get an animated movie nominated for Best Picture kind of deals. Uh, mm-hmm. This is certainly the best of them. I would say it's no Pocahontas um, in that regard. I I think the animation looks gorgeous, but I don't know if it's the one I sort of invest in of this kind of version of the story. I honestly prefer, say, like, the original Ten Commandments, even with all the problematic elements of that movie as well. Um, You mentioning, like, white actors playing Egyptian parts. Um, But thankfully, you know, after Prince of Egypt, that would never happen again with a big Egyptian epic, right? Right, Ridley Scott? That never happened again, right? No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, not at all. Um, and then I did see I Am Sam, weirdly. I was a child and dragged to the theater to see that. Um, and uh, was not necessarily, like, invested in it as a child. And, yeah, I, I, I remember feeling just like I didn't like it that much, but I figured it was definitely one of those words, like, maybe even if I'm older, I'll get it. And it'll make more sense to me. Um, and, no, the, I have not revisited it, but the older I get, I'm just like, I don't know if I ever want to, like, gleam that again. Especially with, as you mentioned, Such awful Beatles covers. Even as a kid, I recognized, like, these are bad versions of good songs. (laughs) I don't get what this is all about. But, yeah, definitely, I think, uh, two solid picks for Pfeiffer. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, repeat our titles for everybody out there, um, in case you want to add them to your watch list or avoid them from your watch list. Uh, My good pick was The Fabulous Baker Boys, and
1: my bad pick was Dark Shadows. My good pick was The Prince of Egypt, and my bad pick was I Am Sam. And uh, we're going to get to the uh, end
0: here and do our picking for next week, so stay tuned for that. But before we do, we have to thank some people, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.vancamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor-Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Knight with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for all of his great stuff on various socials. And thanks, of course, to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod, where for just $1 a month, you all get access to uh, bonus podcasts and polls that we do, um, and you all get to help us sort of decide how the show goes. And also, like I mentioned, listening to the bonus podcasts. Um, Not too long after this episode comes out, uh, you know, before the end of February, we'll be putting out um, our first attempt at an awards show, uh, which we are dubbing the dubs D U B Z, uh, cause we want to come up with the dumbest name possible that if anyone actually received a statue with the thing of the dubs on it, they would throw that statue out immediately. (laughs) Any, like, massive (laughs) award-winning actors out there. Um, But yeah, it's our sort of version of the Oscars where we're looking back at the movies of 2022 and, you know, uh, spotlighting some nominees and winners, some of which were nominated by the Oscars, some of which weren't. So if you become a patron for the $1, you get access to listen uh, to Adam and I doing those picks. And that's right, Adam will be coming back out of his hiatus briefly, at least, to uh, go ahead and do that with me. It'll be a lot of fun. But... Uh, Of course, I can't end the show without thanking Chris, our lovely guest host. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Go ahead and plug
1: yourself. Where can people find you out there on the internet? Thank you so much for having me. I hope the invitation is always open and I... Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great time. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Cinema Creep, which is also my Letterboxd handle. And you can find some of my writing at Exclaim.ca, Filmcred, uh, Film Pulse. And if you want to hear more of my voice ramble on about things that probably don't matter, uh, you can subscribe to my podcast, uh, Cartoon Night in Canada, where me and my co-host Sylvie explore the wild and wonderful world of Canadian television animation. Yes, I believe. Didn't you just do the big episode about Ed and Nettie recently? We did do that, but unfortunately, that's not our latest episode. Our latest no. one is on the fifth and sixth season of Celebrity Deathmatch, which you want to talk about oh. things that haven't aged well. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> it seems like it would aged so perfectly, mm-hmm. especially where celebrities never die.
0: It makes so much sense. Oh, uh, of course. But- <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, for more of uh, us, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And you can also uh, f- send emails to us uh, at double at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, and for more of me, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at both uh, film-cred.com and uh, over at uh, my blog, marianitomas.wordpress.com. And uh, for more of the show, please subscribe to us on various platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows that are here on the network. And uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we even joined TFS. And anything else, if uh, you can't support us on the Patreon for the $1, it's cool. We get it. Money's tight. The free way to help us out, though, is simply rate, review, or share the show around to give us more visibility. But now, Chris, it's time that we do the picking for next week. So, as we usually do at the end of every episode, uh, we have... Two good and two bad picks, uh, two of which were submitted by Adam. uh, In this case, the bad picks for next week. And I have uh, the two good picks for next week. And uh, each of those are assigned number between 1 and 10. And uh, the other person on the show, in this case, Chris, will pick number between 1 and 10 for both uh, my choices and Adam's choices for next week's episode. And uh, I'll decide our good and bad features. So, for example, Chris might say, I'm going to pick number 10 And I'll say, okay, that's close to number eight, which is this particular choice. And I'll be doing our picking for next week's episode, which we're doing uh, in honor of Creed 3 coming out, which is actually a Jonathan Major's blockbuster of sorts I'm excited about. Very fascinating to see how that goes. Um, We are doing spinoff films. So very specifically, these spinoffs, not a sequel, not a prequel, but movies that are spun off and follow a sort of side character from our original film. So, uh, there'll be a lot of uh, interesting good or bad choices potentially there. So, for
1: my two good choices, though, Chris, please pick a number between 1 and 10. Ooh, okay. Uh, I'm feeling a... uh, 7.
0: All right. At number 6, I had a movie that, you know, very appropriate given uh, what we're tying the spinoff episode to, the, uh, I think, amazing... Uh, surprising spinoff of the Rocky franchise, the original 2015 Creed. Yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, can't wait to talk about that for sure. Though, on the other side of things, I had one um, over at number two that I think doesn't get enough credit it's like a really fun spinoff, and I think definitely is, like especially of a surprise great movie as well, just like they spun off this one side character who's obviously a big character in other media and did a great job with it. Uh, over at number two, I had the Lego Batman movie.
1: Oh God, yeah, that is that holds up surprisingly well. I rewatched it recently. That is a delightful, delightful Lego movie.
0: Great movie. But now, for Adam's two bad picks, please, Chris, number between one and ten. Once again, give me nine. Okay. At number ten, uh, Adam has an interesting one. I have not seen. And I guess it is technically a spinoff in that it relates to a very early sort of like 70s, 80s franchise uh, that um, it was kind of like an infamous disaster. Uh, He has
1: 1984's Supergirl. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. You want me to pick again? (laughs) No,
0: no. I'm at least glad we went with that because over at number three, uh, Adam had selected, I think, a much worse movie. That was a very bizarre spinoff for a bizarrely like successful movie, uh, I think, I believe the biggest bomb of a comedy of all time, he had Evan Almighty.
1: Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, you got the, uh, You're. I guess you're lucky. It doesn't, it might not feel like it right now, but you dodged that bullet there. I have, a, I've seen Evan Almighty. I'm aware uh, that there's,
0: <laughs> that's a much more painful experience, I think, than Supergirl. Supergirl at least is like fascinating to some degree. So, yeah, uh, we'll be talking about Creed and Supergirl next time on the show here. Uh, but, Until next time, everybody, you know, just get on your bikes and find yourself a cool rider.